Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Yay! <laughs> Another thrilling opening, totally not scripted. Yeah, I make we should the have same... something fancier than I don't I, know. We should have a sound effect, maybe. <laughs> the Christopher and Eric Show! Jazz hands. Um, okay, no, none so of that. None of that. Bi- none this of that. right up front. What? The stuff has come up, and we've really we've got a jam-packed episode, so we're not going to be able to discuss sauce and frosting this week, <laughs> but I promise we will have an episode devoted to our idea for our amazing restaurant. But, 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 but now, you, now you make me want to explain just simply no, what... No, 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 we just don't okay. have time. You have to go back and listen to the last episode to know what sauce and frosting is about. Okay, that's it. Well, actually, we said we were going to tell them in this episode, and, and we just don't have time. <laughs> we just don't have time. So every week, we will be out of time to discuss it's sauce the, and frosting. It's, it's the Matt Damon guest spot of <laughs> you know Jimmy Kimmel. Wait, no, I don't explain that. Every week, Jimmy Kimmel says every show. I think they say, and if there's time, Matt Damon, and then he's never on the show. Like they Be- never bring him on the show because there's an age-old feud between the two of them, having to do with Sarah Silverman, who I think used to be in a relationship with Jimmy Kimmel. Is that correct? Mm, no, actually, I made this up. That was just part of this gimmick. They're actually really good friends. Now they did. He did the um. He did the um, I'm fucking Ben Affleck. I see. Number right. and Absolutely. then Matt in Revenge did I'm fucking Sarah Silverman because Jimmy Kimmel was still seeing her then. I think that's right. I think that was <laughs> because the, Matt Damon was seeing Ben Affleck then. The parents, but they were, but he was breaking them up. The idea I that, see. that Ben I Affleck see. preferred Jimmy Kimmel to right. Yeah, absolutely. To Matt Damon, and so yeah, and now, then let they, me let me just and ask then he though. did. They did an episode where um, Matt raided the set and tied Jimmy to a chair and gagged him and hosted the show oh, that's while fantastic. pushing Jimmy around on a rolling chair. That is like, fantastic. It's been a long-running gag between the two of them. And So let me just ask, we had planned, uh, we had time, I should say, for this digression into the history of the Jimmy Kimmel show, but we have no time to discuss Sauce and Frosting. Well, obviously, because we okay, talk, fine, spent all fine. that time talking about Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> fine, 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 fine. It's fine. Whatever's good for the show is what I do. You know how I work. You've worked with me now for what... <laughs> 40, 50, 60 years here in the here in our studio on the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California. But we should tell people what we're not doing today. We are keeping our promise from the last episode. We are not doing an episode of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club today. We have some crime to talk about, yeah. but we have some more far-reaching yeah, theoretical last week was topics. Yeah, so gruesome. It was just, yeah. Yeah, it was grim and gruesome. Yeah. Grim and gruesome. Happy Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day <laughs> with this episode of People Magazine Investigates the Hideous Murder of a Loving and Devoted Mother, which is what we talked about on the last episode, and it's not what we will be talking about today. We'll be no. talking about my hideous new book that's coming well, in that's, August. It's not hideous. It's a fabulous <laughs> new book. What's it called? Oh, shit. You know, I forgot. No, it's called Blood Victory. 
It is the third in the Burning Girl series. And blood finally gets the upper hand. Blood finally <laughs> triumphs. I, blood, am tired of being spilled. I shall remain in the body for this entire novel. No, that's really not. Uh, the blood does not stay in the body. Although I will say it has become clear to me after three books in this series that it seems I have a rule, right? Like, So the premise is... Charlotte Rowe has a drug or is administered a drug. Let's yeah, let's let's step back. For those of you who are foolish enough not to have read Very any of the Burning Girls, which is ridiculous because they're so cheap. The Burning Girls, <laughs> <laughs> they're printed on toilet paper. Read, they're like yeah, they're uh, yeah. little telegrams. Um, no, that's not true. I I think they are a good price though. Their Amazon publishes them and yeah. they do a good job with pricing. Um, no, it 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 is a series about the character. Talk about talk about catechism. Sorry, talk about Charlotte. Talk about Charlotte Rowe. She's the hero of the Burning Girl series. When you meet her in Bone Music, which is essentially her origin story, uh, when she was but a baby, her mother was abducted and murdered by serial killers, who then decided to raise Charlotte as their own until she was discovered and rescued from them at the age of seven years old. Um, all of that is the prologue to the book, so I'm not giving too much away. That's her backstory, essentially. And then when you catch up with her, she is living in seclusion with some money she's managed to secure from the father who basically exploited her tragedy for every penny that he could. And she is working with this mysterious but very handsome therapist at this uh, health center in the Arizona town where she's living. And he basically convinces her to take what he says is a very mild and slow-acting anti-anxiety drug. And what happens and what is revealed is that the drug is, in fact, highly experimental and has the effect of turning her adrenaline, her fear, the not just her adrenaline, but the chemical and neurological processes of fear into a burst of super strength that lasts for three hours. And so the foundation of the series is she... Realizing she has been turned into a human guinea pig by these incredibly powerful corporate forces that she can't really defeat on her own, she decides to go along on the condition that they will allow her to hunt and overpower right, terrible serial happens, killers. She gets triggered, and it yeah. turns out she's like, yeah, she's like Wonder Woman. It's kind of right. amazing. I mean, she can't fly. I don't know if Wonder Woman can just jump. She can't actually fly. Uh, that's a good question. Right? I don't know if Wonder Woman I think can Wonder fly. Wonder Woman can jump. She has the. In- she has Wonder the invisible the, the jet. Booth, I'm hearing from the booth that Wonder Woman can fly. Oh, yeah? Yes, the booth is telling oh, okay. me. All right. The booth, otherwise known as Brandon Griffith, our so beloved she, brick nerd who so we posted about the, recently oh, on yeah. Facebook. Simply irresistible Brandon Griffith, yes. Um, why does she need the invisible plane if she can fly? In case she wants to bring guests? Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce that question to the booth. <laughs> Does anyone in the booth named Brandon know why Wonder Woman needs her plane if she can fly? I'm being told that it varies from different storylines. So yeah, that it's is all a, over the place. An age-old feud between comic book writers that going back, like big fight to yeah. the age of the before time. So anyway, it is. It is like Wonder Woman. Can't. She's needs, not she can't really fly. a superhero, and it, I think the thing that's really, I the thing that one of the things that I love is that it is in response to her personal fears that she is mm-hmm. that she activates this. This um, superpower, these extraordinary ex- extraordinary powers, I guess is really a better way to, right? Because they're human powers, but they're multiplied. Like yes, she can crush 
metal with her bare hands or whatever. Right. Like, and not like an aluminum can. I mean, like, you know. Not like the scene from Jaws with Richard bar. Dreyfus and Robert Shaw the having their the car dueling yeah. can crushing on the deck of the Orca. No. And she heals. Rapidly, yeah. almost instantly, and so she's. It makes her more impervious to, but it is an enhancement of her humanness yes. rather than superpowers, rather than something beyond. Absolutely, like, and she's at not the bulletproof end but. of three hours, it's over. It lasts for three hours, and then she returns to her normal physical state. So it's like underdog with those pills in his ring. <laughs> I don't know this. This is a reference. I don't know who's underdog. Wait, tell me. Never heard of underdog. No, is this a cartoon oh from your childhood? God. Is this like Secret Squirrel? Yes, it oh would be God. a contemporary. Of, yes, underdog was humble. He was a. He was by day. He was a shoeshine boy. He was humble and lovable. But, and but then when you know time came, he. Um, took the pills that he kept in his ring and it made him underdog. And he was always fighting the evil machinations of Simon Bar Sinister, um, which means left-handed, um, to uh, <laughs> to protect his uh, his secret love, Sweet Polly Purebred. Wow. Wait, yeah. I have to ask, was he a dog? Oh, yeah. Oh, he was a dog. Okay, good. I don't sound like an idiot. He was like a cartoon dog. Oh, no, dog. he was actually, and so was okay. Poly, Sweet Polly Purebred. They were all dogs because interspecies love in cartoons well, was not okay yet then. It's I, okay now. It still freaks me out. Yeah, um, yeah Simon Barsenister was not a dog, but um, but he and Sweet Polly were. Everybody else, I think, was kind of a person, and it didn't seem to bother anybody else that there was this talking dog shining shoes and <laughs> saving people. <laughs> I would love to be friends with a talking shoe shine dog. And great theme song, which I will not sing we, we'll, I, but we'll find it. We'll find it and we'll post it on the Facebook page for the dinner party show. But anyway, yeah, it's just like Underdog. That was actually my pitch. Is like, remember Bar that cartoon, Underdog? Here's the theme song. Under, underdog. Ooh, and I would take underdog. it out and play on a tape recorder because you can't get that theme song on a digital file. It's only on audio oh cassette. Oh, my God. It's probably, track. Yeah, it's probably only on those old Victrola um, cylinders that it's <laughs> gramophone from, from a long time ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I loved Underdog. I think Wally Cox. Remember Wally Cox? I don't remember Wally he Cox. Was Center Square, like back when the Hollywood Squares were. When was Paul Lind Center Square? Wasn't Paul Lind Center Square for he, years? We've talked about I him on the show he before. Was, I think he later replaced Wally Cox. Okay, uh, maybe Wally Cox was not Center Square, but he was. Uh, he was a regular on there. He was actually Marlon Brando's old roommate, which you would not have guessed. Oh my he was god! This kind of wimpy. Funny. He was very Buck Henry sort of humor. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. kind of off the wall, crazy kind of humor. Anyway, he was he was the voice of Underdog. Right? Yeah. And now we're that we're through talking about stuff that no one has I... ever heard of because I'm the only one old enough to remember. But that could be a podcast all of its own. Stuff you've never heard of with Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> that I still remember. Stuff Eric remembers. We could do a podcast where I sing all of the jingles that I can remember from childhood. Old cartoon jingles. Right. Now all of those more way more than cartoons. I wow, mean everything. Jingles. Oh yeah. Jingle of... jingle palooza. Yeah, there was no room for algebra. Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> jingles they slid jingles right in. Jingles I've got, but but no algebra. All those didn't fit. data banks are full of jingles. What's this? He's, he's full of jingles. You know, he's one of those types. Full of so, jingles. Anyway. Back to Charlotte. Yes. She doesn't keep the pills in a ring, although you might want to consider that because it's not uncool. Um, and she, But she, when she takes them, she gets three hours of being extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Extraordinarily then, strong. Yeah. 
and extraordinarily her human her humanity is enhanced mm-hmm. and then she goes back to being but that's the thing about the premise is that it's like responding to your fear with strength yes. i just think that's so to me that is such a a wonderful sort of underlying idea although mm-hmm. not the original <laughs> the original idea had some problems, which surfaced when I had lunch with my dear friend Derek Shaw Quinn and our friend Jacqueline Benzrecki. Who we were was, in Seattle for yeah. a musical preview of a yeah, possible, I don't know what it became A possible musical that was going to be made of my mother's novel, Cry to Heaven. And, and it may still be in process. It may I, still, I don't know what the process of it is, but I know the music was great. We had not heard the music yet when we went to lunch. But we went, we went there to hear a sort of like, it was like a staged reading. It wasn't yeah. really, you know, there was It was in a studio yeah. with, with, with folding chairs. Like a dance school. Yeah. Um, hardwood floors, mirrors, and people singing to right. this, this wonderful music. It was, it was really gorgeous. Quite, it, was it was a gorgeous. lovely read-through. Absolutely gorgeous. And I, I, I hope that it hasn't gotten the full stage treatment yet, but I hope that it's headed Yeah, there. fingers crossed. I actually don't know what the status of it is currently, but... Anyway, know. so it was several years ago. We went, and while we were there... We went to because you were working on another project at I can't even Amazon. Remember. Was it no, the I Vines? did not have the vines had already come out. I had published a book with Amazon Publishing. It was kind of a big deal, new publishing model. I had left traditional publishing to do it, and it had been an interesting experience. But I wasn't quite sure what to do next. I had a one book contract with them, and I was working on some romances with the my fabulous friends at A Thousand and One Dark Nights and Evil Eye, and now Blue Box Press. And I, those were novellas. They were smaller projects. We were doing the dinner party show, I think. We had already started working on it. I think so. And I was not sure what novel I was going to write next. So I, we sat down with Jackie, who at the time was working at Amazon Publishing, and I said to her, what's selling and what do you guys want? And she said, serial killer thrillers with a strong female heroine. And I said, well, you know, it just so happens I've I, I've got an idea for one of those, but it's a it's a little weird, and you I don't think you'd ever heard it before. I was surprising you. I don't think we had. I don't think we had talked about it. I said, the idea is that a woman essentially is here's the here's the opening is she gets taken captive by a hideous serial killer who's clearly going to torture and murder her in his chamber of horrors, and at the very moment when you think you know she's done for. She somehow manages to pop out of her restraints and overpower him and basically kill him. And so the inevitable question is, how? How is she able to do that? And the answer at the time was, um, aliens. And a silence fell over the table, and you all both looked at me and said, well... It's really great, except for the part about the aliens. The part about the aliens. And I was like, like, why do we need aliens? It had this overarching story that it was like, it sounded cool, but it was really disconnected from character and plot and motivation, which was that aliens had, for some reason, or some alien species had come here to mine aspects of the serial killer brain that they needed as a weapon in their planet or universe like this was going to be the so easy and it was so far out lunch there. was great it was <laughs> it was so but you guys said this is a great idea just ditch the aliens any idea because the the this was the foundation of the ideas you wanted a character who in some way was enabled to get nose to nose with the most vicious sadistic killers 
at the moment when the killer thought he was about to get what he was after and turn the fucking tables on them in that moment. It was in a revenge piece, essentially. Yes, which is my favorite thing. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So the challenge of making it an idea that didn't have so much plot crammed into it that you got eventually taken away from what was fun you and, mean ju- and juicy. Yeah, exactly. That was fun and juicy about I don't even think I wasn't called Burning Girl yet. It was I didn't I don't even know if it had a name. Um you you didn't want to stray too far from I think it had that name really early on. It had another name which the agent nixed. Oh yeah? Yeah. It had a name because it, what developed later was her backstory, and the Burning Girl thing came out of her backstory. Oh, you're right. And in that moment, it was about coming up with an explanation for how she got these powers that was simple and elegant enough that she could be this huntress right. without getting caught up on a spaceship and some intergalactic storyline yeah. that was going to— That was you know. not going to be. Anyway, so— It was just a, it was too big a digression for what you wanted. And the thing that was so appealing about it when you originally talked to us about it was the idea of— Instead of, you know, running and turning her ankle and needing to be rescued by Mm -hmm. some guy, she rescued herself. She Mm -hmm. didn't need, you know, that was, it was, that was such a hot notion Mm -hmm. of her being able to manage her own story, being the captain of her own ship. She was really the hero of the piece. She was the one Mm -hmm. who, um, and then later when there was a guy, he. He was kind of the one to run and yes. turn his ankle and need to be rescued and by her. That's like, which what I the loved second even book more. ended up being about. Right, totally. It's that was really totally... been that the whole progression with her has been mm-hmm. has been one. And then there's you know the the ultimate joy for me is that it's about it is a it has a revenge quality. You love revenge, which I just yeah. I am such a fan of the like whether it's fashionable or not to still like Mel Gibson. He made a movie called. Payback, I think mm-hmm. it was called. Just love it. Um, mm-hmm. Clive Owen did one called Shootout or Shoot 'em mm-hmm. Up or something like that, which I adored. I, I think it's part of the reason that I love um, uh, Blacklist mm-hmm. is because he On NBC, always right. gets the upper hand. He always manages to one up. He's a bad guy, but the other bad guys are worse, and he one ups them. Like mm-hmm. he's never, they never see him. The, I, they, they've been doing more of that where he gets like it'll be a three story arc and he ultimately gets the upper hand but I like for him to keep the upper but hand the, and this is the classic crap that we deal with in Hollywood right when we're, we're trying to develop an idea and the executive says he or she is too accomplished we need her to fail we need her to be quote unquote relatable oh and God. we're always saying 
we go to popular entertainment for stories of heroes right. and heroines. Yeah. Let them win. I don't want to see them. You know, you always talk about how if they just keep losing, you stop watching. I become bored. Right. Like, yeah. The Avengers are not a hit because they lose. <laughs> like, that's not, you know what I mean? And I think, I you would think Hollywood could take its own fucking lesson. Right. Like, they almost killed the franchise with that, that two-parter where half the population of the universe died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like that was, and they had to go back in time or whatever to save it. Yeah. There's another aspect of this that, that was, and how I shaped the burning girl series that was very influenced by our conversations about the kind of entertainment and media that we love to consume, which is, you know, that the, um, we, we both share a disdain for, I don't know if you'd even call it a trope, but I've been given, Amazing superpowers. Oh my God. And I don't want them because I just want to be like everybody else. I just else. want a normal life. Like, fuck. There would be no lottery if people really wanted a normal life. If you can fly and you don't want that power because you think people will make fun of you, give it to me. I will be happy to be made fun of if I could fucking leap a tall building in a single bound. Or give me a gun and let me blow your brains out because I don't want to hear that from you again. (laughs) You know, as long as you're not bulletproof. Right, exactly. Like, I just, it's the stupidest, that, that and... Um, here's this character and he is absolutely the best in the world at doing this thing. And now we're going to put him in a situation where he has to do this thing and he's not going to be able to do it. Even though we just told you he's the best in the world at doing this thing. Like if you want me to turn off your show, that is the fastest way to accomplish it because I'm like, well, then he's incompetent. Why would I want to watch a show about an incompetent who can't do the thing that he was hired to do? And then That's a bore to me. There's the flip side of that, which is the you pointed it out with the television show Medium for years. It was also oh true God. on 24, which is I've solved the case or I've saved the world 20 times in a row. And every time I try to get involved, you treat me like someone's kid brother who is pulling on your dress. Or like I really fucked it up the last right, time. Right, like, like yeah, the medium was always right. <laughs> always. And every week it was like they she had to reconvince everybody. It was like I think at least her husband would remember right. that but every other time she was right. Yes. So calm down. Exactly. Like I just yeah, that's just dumb. And so there's a there's none of that in All the Burning Girl writing. series. Like I was not gonna have her commit to using this power, this gift to hunt serial killers and then be super guilty over what she was doing all the time and and say I just want a normal life. But the the thing that I like about it is that if she wants a normal life, excuse me, after 3 hours, she can kind of have one. Like she can make love to her boyfriend without being worried that she's going to accidentally snap his head off with a a a, a shove <laughs> like Hancock. <laughs> like Hancock, right, exactly. Where like certain things are completely lost to you. So, yeah, and the thing that is really I think really compelling about that I love about the series is that after the 3 hours, like the real challenge to to Charlotte to mm-hmm. Chuck is is after the 3 hours. Mhm. Yes. Like how do I have a real life? How mm-hmm. do I negotiate having a relationship with somebody? Because her real life has been pretty fucked up. Yeah, exactly. And so negotiating those boundaries in many ways is more challenging to her than the extraordinary nature of her life. But finding that balance is also a part of it. And I just think that's, 
I just think that's brilliant. Yeah. Because in the end, it is a wonderful metaphor for what everybody is trying to do. Be extraordinary. Do the best job that you can possibly do, but also have a life that you can right. love living. Yeah, exactly. I feel it as a writer. It's like when I'm writing, it's great. Now I'm done for the day. What do I do with the voices in my head? And you always counsel, you got to find something to do. You got to find a constructive hobby or whatever. I don't have, I don't live with a family. I have family, but they, we don't live together. You live several blocks away. So I live alone. So if I want to just sit in the, if I want the narrative to turn self-obsessed and dark, once I step away from the computer, it can happen very quickly. So yeah, absolutely. I think that the other thing, and I, I don't want to spoil too much about books one and two, and I do encourage people who are interested to begin with book one. But I will say the thing that is different about this book is that the team has the, the every element of the team that you need for a full scale hunt is now in place and working together. And the book is a hunt. So if you if you're listening and you've read books one and books two, you know that those books were not one continuous hunt for a killer. This one is. And it is a road story. It well, is mobile the almost other two the entire were, I'm glad to yeah. hear that. The other two were about first coming to terms with the powers in her own life and right. making that decision. And then two, bringing the team together. So now that the team is together, we're off and running. We're off and running. Yet another thing that I the team, love. The team. The team. They spend yeah. the entire 26 episodes yeah. of the season getting the team together. And when we come back in the fall, somehow they've all, there's been a diaspora and they've all been blown Remember to the four heroes? Oh, my God. Remember I was heroes. so angry. Yeah. I was so angry. I think I quit watching. Hey, I quit watching, too, and he apologized. He actually acknowledged that to Tim Kring, the showrunner for that show, said... We thought that the appeal of the show to people was to see them gradually coming together. So we thought that we felt an obligation to repeat that in the second season. And the response from everybody was I mean, no. I and yeah, you're right. It's like I watched it. and I watched and you built this thing and then you blew it up and whatever. So yeah, the team is the team is more together than it's ever been in Blood Victory, and they are focused on a single goal. Well, we don't want to do, you know, No, spoilers, I don't want to spoil too much, but, but yeah. But what can you tell us about the new book? Well, I can tell you this. Like, the thing about it being a hunt basically from start to finish, I can tell you that I have listened closely to reader requests from various corners about the fate of two particular characters with each other, and oh. I have chosen to honor those requests. And that's all I'm going to say. And the people who know what I'm talking about will probably be able to read that code I just spoke in. Uh, and I think... Well, I'm going to ask a, 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 what may or may not be a related question. Okay. But there has been um, maybe some uh, grumbling, mm -hmm. let's say, mm -hmm. um, about... Uh, the the fact that maybe you're not your lead character is not gay. She is not gay. Charlie is heterosexual. Yes. And that that the impression that people are getting from just mm -hmm. glancing over the cover of your book is that you've given up writing about gay characters. That's very much not the case. That is very much not the case. And that does happen to be related to the code I was just speaking in. I suspect it. And I can say this without spoiling anything. I think the interesting choice when when the main character in something I'm writing is is straight, the interesting choice I like to make is taking um, another type of character who is not usually gay and making them gay, and that's what I did in this series with Cole Graydon. That the 
I wouldn't call him the evil overlord. Well, the bad guys are really clearly bad guys, but he is very um, nuanced. The arbiter of power, as I shall put it, the person that Charlie is answering to, whether she likes it or not, is is the gay character. And I don't usually... uh, We're used to that character being a woman, sort of the ice water in her veins, billionaire son who runs the company and is in charge of keeping the family legacy. And, and there's a great duality to him. Yeah. Almost in parallel to the duality to Charlie, to Right. to Charlotte. Yeah, absolutely. They're both damaged by things that happened in their past in different ways which you learn about in the second book. And but there is a shared desire in them Cole's agenda, which is clear from the very beginning, and this isn't spoiling anything, is that this drug, while it does something remarkable in Charlie, this three-hour burst of super strength, it doesn't do anything that he can actually bring to market. You know, he was out. He yet. was developing. Yet he was developing a drug that was about um, trying to create focus in uh, people who were likely to be victimized by physical violence. Trying to shut down the panic responses in the brain that were not productive in those moments. I mean, there are certain elements of fight or flight are productive, but freezing, quiescence, I believe is what they call it, is not productive. And so they were trying to develop a drug that almost made you hyper-competent in the face of a physical attack, and instead, through a series of accidents and experiments that didn't really work out, they've created this thing which, That's while nice it's great for getting serial killers with a secret <laughs> vigilante force, it's not so great for his bottom line at Graydon Pharmaceuticals. And the other tech that you have developed in and around them are just, it's divine. I won't, everybody should read it for themselves. Yeah. Spoil, but the, your, the imagination that you apply to the tech that, Whatever she happens to need at any given moment, right? They have these amazing properties. It's like I wonder if this really exists. This I don't would be know. So cool. I hope that it will because yeah. it's very. Uh, it's it's really an an It's like the flip phones that are the communicators on Star Trek. They we didn't yeah. have anything like that when they first made the show, and now it's you know common as dirt. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I really, I have to, I'll be really honest about it. I just make that shit up. Well, I really course. do. I try to use some patina or foundation of what I know about the science around a specific area. But in terms of creating a, an insanely wealthy company that can basically buy or develop any technology that he wants, I don't want to be restrained by the reality. That's no. not the fun. I mean, these books really do have a governing kind of comic book logic to them. And I want that to be entertaining, you know? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's without being those. I always think of those um, in the in the Marvel universe. They have those. Um, it's like a, a an aircraft carrier with huge yes. fans on it to keep it in the air, and it's like that really doesn't seem like a very good design. <laughs> but it looks but it amazing, looks amazing. But it's like, how is this an advantage? I like, don't know. How much fuel to keep those fans spinning enough to keep that entire aircraft carrier and in midair? What like, happens to what's underneath the fans? I it should it just be, be obliterating cities whenever it takes off. Yeah, yeah. yeah it really is. That, that really, really cool. cracks me up. Yeah, it's very fun. It's fun. Kind of it's fun to play with that stuff you know and i don't know maybe you end up being a jules verne right didn't he predict things that he just sort of there made was up no such it? thing as a as a submarine when he wrote yeah however many ten thousand twenty thousand leagues you know how we are with numbers eric uh, numbers is, oh my good. god we had the funniest oh my god. conversation at dinner the other night oh numbers really they really do re- set us back they really it was 
when is it? It's I think it's any minute now. Any There's... minute now, as of this recording, we're uh, an asteroid is going to pass within. We couldn't agree on what the actual distance was. It was either a few feet or a few miles from Earth. Christopher, yeah, I Christopher sure. thought it was three thousand miles. It turns out it was uh, three point five million miles, which is apparently a lot more miles. Yeah, it's more than more than three thousand. And then we got into a discussion about um, how high everything was. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery app. I don't know if this is true for you, but I think it's true for me. The reason I have such a hard time with numbers is that if I don't have a visual reference in my head, I cannot imagine it or quantify it. Like, I have no visual reference for a mile. Well, that like, was what the, is a mile? That was ultimately what made the conversation so funny was right. that we were then got into a discussion of, uh, like, like who knew that 35,000 feet was like six and a half miles? I, I had no I, idea. I didn't know so because I said that airplanes flew at 35,000 miles above the earth, which is not correct. And I, and I was like, no, it's more like 35,000 feet. Yeah. Then I thought, I thought that the space station, the International Space Station, would be about a mile right. above the earth. It's 250 miles above the earth. Like, anyway, it was all informed by... You know, because Christopher got flustered, I began then asserting things that were <laughs> wildly wrong. And then you texted with the with you corrected yourself via well, text. Well, I went home and I was watching television, and there was a trailer for um, some sort of uh, uh, undersea exploration documentary or something, mm -hmm. SeaQuest or something. And it was, um, that was not Sea SeaQuest was a show with Roy Scheider in the eighties. Okay. It was not SeaQuest. Well, that's going to be as close as I get. <laughs> So you're just going to have to go with Sequest. Anyway, they said, and then they developed this bath bathosphere that could go to 35,000 feet beneath the ocean, almost seven miles. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then I began to, like, use my phone for more than, you know, like a social media checklist. And it turns out that, yeah, the... Planes fly about seven miles above the Earth. Planes do it. Asteroids do it. <laughs> and and um, what? It's, uh, Mount Everest is five miles yeah, tall, that's and the space the... station is 250 miles up there. So and... all it takes is one commercial to bring us back it's, in line. But I will of, say yeah. the thing that I said to you when you texted, which is I think the most important thing at all, is that... Throughout those series of corrections, the asteroid's projected path never got closer to Earth. No. It kept getting further away from Earth. And I, as long as that was the solution or the resolution of the problem, I should say, then I think we're fine. Because I really—the place that I don't want to find out that the world is going to end is on Twitter. 
because I don't I don't trust the sources and I don't feel like they'll have the most helpful information. Oh my god, or any information. <laughs> god, I just I keep waiting for Twitter to just fail. Mm-hmm. I'm just so sick of it. You are not a Twitter person, I take it. I'm really like I I I don't mind reaching out to people and saying, hey, there's going to be a new show this week, or I've got a new book coming out, or something like that, or happy birthday so-and-so, or whatever. But, like, the amount of stuff that happens on that, and it's just, I don't know, pissing in the wind. Mm -hmm. It just goes away. Mm -hmm. I just, I find it... If I have to, I would love to watch Well, it doesn't go away if you're going to host the Oscars, I would apparently. love to watch a newscast, yes, <laughs> yeah. until it's convenient. Right. But wouldn't it be wonderful to watch a newscast where Twitter was not mentioned? I think, you know, there is an interesting, there are some interesting comments that I'm hearing, which is that our coverage, or the media's coverage of the political process now is too highly influenced by what they are observing on Twitter and how they are taking that to be a microcosm of the entire country when it really isn't. Like, you can look at the outrage directed at a thing on Twitter, and it is not commensurate with the public outrage of it nationwide. And my personal... I I use Twitter considerably more than you do, although I am trying to wean myself off of it because I think it's damaging to my mental health, to be frank, Uh, particularly my obsessive and compulsive use of it, almost like I used to use cigarettes, you know, opening it up whenever I'm uncomfortable or want to be distracted from the moment that I'm in. I think Twitter is a great way for individual groups and communities to talk to each other, but it's a terrible way for different communities to talk across each other. You see what I'm saying? Like, I think it has been effective at targeting things in an activist sense. It was effective years ago at organizing the Arab Spring or certain parts of the Arab Spring. Well, that was because it was about telling people where to go. That's right. And that's, but they were listening that kind of to each other. Directions. Right. That's a great thing for Twitter to do. Right. But like big in-depth news stories, that's not a good thing for Twitter to do. I am tired of feeling that the most of the active debates of very complex issues are happening in a medium where you are limited to glib responses and performed outrage. I agree with you. I think I just it is, think it's I, very I, destructive. It's really and terrible. And in no way helpful. Yeah, and I think it single-handedly helped build the presidency of Donald Trump. I, it built the, the political career of Donald Trump was essentially built on Twitter. He would go on there, he would vent his spleen, and everyone would simultaneously either think he was a genius who was... Um, saying their truth, or they would just deluge him with outrage, and every piece of outrage just made him grow and grow and grow and well, get bigger. I would say the thing that really built it was that people took this stuff on Twitter seriously. seriously. Yeah. And I think that's my problem with Twitter, is that people take it way too seriously for what it actually is. And journal- It is not an information medium. It's not. Unless the information is- it's going to happen at the corner of Fifth and Main. That's about as much information as you can get from Twitter. And journalists cover it because it's easy to cover. Oh, yeah. They can just open it and say, and outrage, pushback, backlash, these are terms that have no quantification attached to them. This could be 10 people with sizable following saying the same thing, and that becomes an outrage, or that becomes a backlash, or that becomes pushback. And it's like, there's a sense of like, if I don't know who somebody is, if I don't know their work, like the thing that I use, the, 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 when, I, when we talk about book reviews, the difference between um, an anonymously posted review in an internet form 
versus um, a book review published in a major newspaper is that typically the book review the book review that was published in the newspaper was being published by somebody who had a document they had, they had a record of criticism you knew uh, what their opinions were about other works of art that they reviewed they had a body of work that you could examine like I always knew that um, Janet Maslin of the New York Times and I had very different tastes because I had read her reviews of books that I had liked and uh-huh. so I knew if Janet Maslin didn't like it I probably was going to like it yeah so that was something that that medium allowed me to to process as a consumer. It was like a context and a perspective I could give to her reviews. The anonymous review could be coming from anyone or anywhere. You don't know what potential bias it involves. It doesn't it's usually phrased in the form of an attack. And this is not to say there are reviewers today on the internet in the bookstagram community which I love and and utilize. Um, where they do also have a body of work of what they're reviewing. You can go back and look. But it's not anonymous. But, but exactly. It's just, it's it's this sort of like decentering of public opinion into these little poisonous bits of attack that are floating all over the internet. And whoever wants to can pretend like they're all part of a concerted effort. You know what I'm saying? Or they're all part of a, of a, a rising tide of activism. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. How'd we get off on this? Well, I, w- I was the... The the topic of Twitter. It was mm-hmm. the idea that that I just wasn't a, the biggest fan of that particular. But you know, as we were talking, we wanted to talk some about this today too. You are a fan of revenge pieces, and there's a, there is a lot of revenge that people try to get on Twitter. But I want to ask you, since you were so kind and asked me so many questions about my book, what is the appeal of a revenge story to you? I guess it's I guess it's a vicarious sort of. Um, appeal. I, I I think that's the the nature of it. Ultimately, that's a really that's interesting and maybe deeper. But I think most of us very much, and it's also true of of Burning Girl. I think most of us feel pretty powerless against the the forces that oppress us or in in some way are impinging on our lives. Mm-hmm. And in a revenge piece, for the purposes of the of of the story. There is a very clearly established impingement, mm-hmm. and the person rises to the occasion and vanquishes mm-hmm. whatever it is. In the right. in the payback story, he wants to be paid the money that he's owed, and until they pay him, he's going to keep wiping them out. And it's just sort of gratifying. There's something um, cathartic mm-hmm. about having that obstacle pushed out of your way. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think there there are minor examples of it where, you know, the um the amateur sleuth goes in and um tries to make a contribution and is dismissed roundly by the mm-hmm. the brusque official police detective who doesn't take them seriously and whatever. And then ultimately the the amateur detective solves the crime and, you know, kind of gets a little bit, and the detective has to acknowledge that, in fact, they were, there's that kind, there's that level of revenge, too, that Mm -hmm. where it is just that sort of proving yourself, of like being up to the challenge of whatever it is that seems to be overwhelming you. Right. I think it gives us a sort of vicarious way to have that experience. Mm -hmm. Don't you, don't you I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, mean, I knew what you were going to say. I asked the question knowing what I your answer was going to be because I like it. Deep seated 
reasons for that. I don't know what it is. I maybe it's well, growing up as a gay man I was in America, say, or growing up as a gay young man in the South during a time when that was not a popular choice, or just being in America. Like they were yeah. being told just generally, you weren't allowed to exist. The amount of of joy that I felt at overturning of Doma and that the sort of sudden change in in the nature of my life. I had been told that everything about me was invalid by people, you know, close and far, mm-hmm. you know, relatives as mm-hmm. as well as the government of my own country had told me that no, no, no. Mm-hmm. You know, President Obama told me that I was not that he was morally opposed to me having the same rights as him. He evolved, but did, it yeah. was in and around the same time when we kind of had that breakthrough. So I would assume that probably is uh, one of the, you know, the bigger um, impacts. And yes, certainly being a young man who was not much like anybody else in public school in the South during desegregation. Yeah. A challenging I period imagine so. um, yeah. in my life. I, I would not do that again for mm-hmm. a great deal of money. But I, you know, like, I don't know if that alone is the reason you get a certain satisfaction <clears throat> out of revenge pieces. I, I think, think we all do does. for various reasons. Yeah, I, we all have... We all have a sense of injustice. The problem is that we don't all have the same sense of injustice. If we did, it would be a totally ideologically pure society that we lived in. But that's the joy of a revenge piece, right. because you can all get behind whoever your hero is. Like, the, right. It's empowering the hero, whoever he is and whatever it is that he wants. Mel Gibson's character in Payback is... A criminal, yeah. like he gets out of prison and wants his money, and no one will give it to him, and he, and that's why he goes on the rampage. But it 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 doesn't have to do. You don't have to identify with that. I'm not a criminal, but I get the idea. Right. I want my fair share. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I appeals to me about the Burning Girl series, and why I think I can do it for as long as they'll let me, is that. There is no moral ambiguity around these targets. They are sadistic torture murderers. They deserve to be stopped. Now, the question of whether they deserve to be killed or whether their murder is justifiable in the pursuit of that end versus whether they should be kept alive for scientific purposes becomes an ongoing moral question. But Charlie is of the mind, as I am as well, that a lot of what passes for serial killer science particularly profiling, is a steaming crock of bullshit. And that, I may be getting a little controversial here, but when I did a deep dive on the history of serial killer profiling, there have been profiles that have worked, there have been profiles that are effective. I'm not saying all profiling is bad or wrong, but I'm saying that, and I know this from talking to law enforcement sources, that there is fear that when a profile is generated, that the investigating authorities who are usually local, and let's say the profile came from behavioral science at the FBI, which is the unit depicted in Silence of the Lambs, uh-huh. that they lean too heavily on that profile rather than doing the actual footwork of, of uh, sifting through forensic evidence and doing looking at what's right in front of them about the crimes themselves. No, we're looking for a loner who lives in a basement and has an overbearing mom because that's what we've seen in all the movies. You know, I think a lot of that is that, bullshit. That, um, that depiction recently of the um the the search for i think it was the search for the unabomber nearly drove me 
out of my yeah. mind right. for yeah. that doing that. Leaning on the profile. Leaning on yeah. that. Well, leaning on the, you know, it has to be this and we can't do that. Absolutely. The, we, we completely ignore you. And you know how it turns out. And so it's just really frustrating to live through their refusal yes. to accept the linguistic profile as a as a way of helping to identify who the... Right. And and, and I, so I, and the other thing that really got me fired up about this point was looking back at the birth of profiling in the 60s and realizing the extent to which their decisions about who was in the serial killer group were shaped and determined by the sexual puritanism of the time. Sexual puritanism left over from the 50s that right. was eroding. But there really was a belief that if you consumed pornography in any way, you were likely to be a serial killer. Well, I am. And now, well, I'm not, and I'm watching porn right now on my phone. No, but like, but then you have today where porn is widespread and widely available, and you're not seeing a giant uptick in serial yeah, killers, really and you realize this was a been. blindness of the time, and when you use this type of psychological profiling, it, you can be inclined to these blindnesses. But it's about moving forward in any particular area. There's that new series that's on PBS now, Vienna Blood, mm. where they're talking about maybe considering, you know, psycho the psychology of the, right. of the characters. But there was also resistance to fingerprints. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. as an idea of blood typing and probably DNA in its own day, like moving forward with any sort of scientific development in that particular area, I think is always has its pitfalls. And it doesn't. I'm not going to be the guy that says forensic science is the end-all be-all because we have watched on, I think we've even talked about it on some of the cases and shows that we've covered here on the podcast, there have been whole bodies of scientific forensic evidence or research that were considered gospel at the time, which have since been completely debunked and disproven. Hair follicle evidence is one of them. They used to say, no, you can tell if the killer was there because all of these hair follicles have exactly the same shape. And none of that was true. They subjected it to experiment after experiment, and they couldn't replicate their results. And so while it was trendy and hot during a moment, <laughs> you know, it's then been, you know, it's since been thrown out. You know, so yeah. there, there's always resistance. It's just I, I think that an analysis of the evidence, um, an intelligent analysis of the evidence is what is going to. So yeah. that said, mm -hmm. how does this how does this dovetail into the um, the, the the Charlie story into Burning Girl? The, the, the Charlie's the, attitude is that they're not going to be a contribution to science. She says on more than one occasion to her captives. I'm not interested in your jailhouse interview where you try to blame your crimes on pornography or how your mom was mean. You know, I think that you are an addict who is addicted to other people's pain. She's got an addiction model in her head when it comes to that. Huh. You know, and I will say that. I guess that's true, yeah. Yeah, you know, like they are, um, because the, it, at its most basic definition, uh, or, or I think the serial killers that have captured our imagination, if you will, were for the most part sexual sadists. They became sexually aroused by inflicting pain on unconsenting victims. Uh -huh. You know, they were not BDSM guys who were playing with other consenting adults in a safe space in, a, in their playroom. They wanted, if the victim was willing right. in any way, it, it was not their thing. Spoiled the fun. Yeah, yeah. it spoiled their fun. So she has an orientation around that. And I think her, her in the first book, you explore that. Her anger at the FBI and her lack of faith in profiling has to do with the fact that the one of the serial killers who murdered her mother and tried to raise her was a woman. 
Yeah. And the profile said, no, the serial killer is a man. And it didn't allow for the fact that the man and the woman were working together and that the reason these female motorists in the Appalachian Mountains were letting their guard down when they were approached is because there was a woman present. Right. And that's how they got away with their crimes for so long. So anyway, that's my book and that's the made up part. But but um, that's how it ties in. Yeah. No, I yeah. can I can see how that that fits. So. When is it that we're going to get the third Well, we're doing we're doing this podcast now because our friends over at Book Bonanza are going to promote this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's part of their branding. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's an old west book festival. It actually is taking place in Dallas in August and, well, that's and pretty I'm, old and western. Yeah, so it's it'll be fun and I will be there and we'll be selling hardcovers of this uh, title in advance of when the book actually goes on sale. So that'll be fun, and I'll have other books for sale there. And naturally, I did not bring in the date of what when Book Bonanza is, but because we're just doing a radio show right. about it, so why should why we the argue? fuck should it's I? It's not bring a radio show; I it's have, a podcast. I have, I have to learn notes the difference. on like eighteen thousand other things here, but not the date. It's a Book Bonanza, but <laughs> we will post about it on the Facebook page. And Book Bonanza is going to post this episode on their Facebook page, which is very lovely of them. Um, and. So that's what that's why we're talking about it in February. <laughs> it's basically that's the explanation. But I'm sure we'll talk about it again some more when we're not talking about hour long episodes of uh Let's true see. Crime Let's TV see shows. here. What does the interweb oh, thank, have to say about Thank God you're doing this. I don't even know where my Oh, here's Book my phone. Bonanza. Book Bonanza. 2020. 2020. I know it's at the Gaylord Hotel. Outside of Dallas, <laughs> he said Gaylord. Gaylord. <laughs> Gaylord, we're nine. <laughs> um, well, we don't have to both look it up. I can fill the dead air while you search for it on your phone. Right? Because that's my contribution is dead air. Absolutely. Well, I'm. I should just, you know, this is this is proof that it is time for me to upgrade the interweb in this particular. Oh yeah, building. we have really bad internet in here because we're not streaming the show over the web anymore. We have the worst internet. Oh, here it comes. Oh, the blue line's almost halfway. <laughs> oh my god! I'm glad I asked this question early. Yes, if you're smoking weed while you listen to this podcast, oh. now's a good time to reload your bowl. August 13th <laughs> through August 15th. That makes sense. Does it say it's at the Gaylord and uh, um, let's see, he's handing me his phone, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, August thirteenth, twenty twenty, through August fifteenth, twenty twenty. God, thank God. Yeah, that they, was that actually came up right away, and I was waiting for something to open, and it still hasn't. But oh, there we, well, there we go. You opened the now graphic. it opened. Now, as you can see from their graphic, it does not relate in any way to the old TV show Bonanza. Which is, you know, like a mixed blessing. It's a mixed blessing. We'll see. <laughs> but I can still. You can sing that song just over and over I just again. Just didn't have any words. You can sing on and on and on. I forever. really can. There's all of those themes stuck with me. Okay. So, True Crime TV Club is back next week. You don't have to talk about What my are we going to be talking about? Again. Oh, we love talking about I Burning know. Girl. I love Burning Girl. Just being humble. Just being humble here. Well, that's so attractive. Okay. We're talking about, we're doing a new series that we've never done before, although I should stop saying that because I don't know if we've repeated any series at all. We've done Dateline, we, we've done 2020, we've done all sorts of stuff. It's your show. Say whatever the fuck you want to. Man Knock yourself out. Mansions 
and murders. How could I resist mansions and murders? <laughs> I love mansions and I'm crazy about murders. Crazy about mansions and murders. The episode title is Great Exploitations, and you can find it. I think there's only one season of the show available online, and it is season one, really? episode. Only lasted one oh, season. Episode five, not a good sign. Um, I will, of course, as always, be delivering a report upon the uh, on the reenactment level, because everybody here at TDPS knows how I feel about reenactments. Um, but, but we can hardly hate, wait to hear it again. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> Freudian. Oh, 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 Freudian slip. Um, it's the Brooke Astor story. That's what the episode covers. That sounds salacious. Yes. I remember vaguely. That'll be fun to dive back into. Yeah, I, I think you know more about this story than I do. So I, I was, will. Yeah, there was a lot about it. It was quite the yeah, quite the scandal. Quite a scandal. And I will say, here on True Crime TV Club, we are partial to a little bit of scandal with our murders. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that was the one a couple of weeks ago about the the Bloomingdale's. That was really yeah. That was Vanity very. Fair. Saucy. Confidential. I think that was two episodes ago. I can't remember. Very saucy. Back in the previous. We don't have times. enough episodes up to feel like you can't go and search if you're interested, or we mentioned something that you think sounds like your taste. So it's it's just scroll back a little bit. That we're only on what episode twelve here. I think. This yeah. is 13 but or it's you know it's like sauce and frosting. We it's all about we the sauce. We never have time to talk about sauce. We just don't have time to talk about No time again this maybe week. Maybe ne- no next week we've got to talk about oh no, maybe week after next. Maybe week after next. We'll yeah. see. One we'll day see. we'll talk about our restaurant idea, sauce and frosting. One day. But meanwhile, in the meantime, <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn and you've been listening to TDBS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. <laughs>